In reading this passage this summer, I was, I was struck anew by what Jesus was saying. Uh, I'd like to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at what's being said, examples of how this is actually exemplified in Scripture and what it means for us. So what's happening here? You know, context is always important. Um, one of my children, I won't name names, um, you may be able to find it out. When he was seven or eight, we were all gathered together with some extended family enjoying chips and salsa. And in the middle of us enjoying chips and salsa, he proudly exclaimed, I'm a spicy lover. <laughs> now, without context, that story can have some very interesting implications. If we weren't eating spicy food, to say something like that, you could draw an interesting conclusion without the context of who's speaking. If this person was saying that right now, I would wonder what's going on in their life. <laughs> so context, what's being said, who is speaking are all important. The context here is that this is Jesus speaking. He's in the last week of his life on earth. He's been taking questions from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. They're seeking to trip him up. They're seeking to entangle him in his words. And here comes a, a lawyer with one last question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus' response, as we see here, he says, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But he keeps going. Don't miss this. He goes on to say, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the great commandment? First thing, love God with everything you've got. The second thing, love your neighbor as yourself. He's got to be first, but the second is just like it. It's essential, second in priority, but don't miss what he says last to really drive the point home. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's pretty remarkable if we stop and think about what he just said. This is the scripture that God's people had. Jesus is effectively saying that all of God's word hangs on these two commands. This essential framework is, which is everything that Scripture depends upon. At my church, my pastor always likes to end his sermon with one big takeaway. Jesus is providing here the big takeaway for the entire Bible. What is most important? More, more important than anything else, love God, love neighbor. Now what's also amazing to think about, this is Jesus. Just days before his crucifixion, we know who he is. He's the Word, the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, and he's summing up himself. This is what I'm about. This is why I came, to tell you this and to show you this. It was love for the Father and love for his neighbor that led him to empty himself of his heavenly glory and take on human flesh. It was love for God and love for neighbor that led him to live a life of perfect obedience. It was love of the Father and love of neighbor that took him to the cross, that held him there, and that allowed him to suffer the rejection of his Father, separation from the Father, the humiliation, and ultimately the imputation of all our sins. The Word himself is summing up the word about himself, and he charges us to do the very same thing. 
follow his lead. After all, that is what discipleship fundamentally is, following Jesus, loving what he loved, doing what he did. Stephanie did a wonderful job of sharing that with us on Monday. That's what discipleship is. It is relational. It's living life together. It's more than content. It's character. It's more than the message. It's the messenger. This isn't pure cognitive transfer. It's actually modeling it for one another. We're discipled by watching other people, learning from their experiencing, witnessing their choices. It's why the church is so important. It's why small groups are key. We learn by watching and listening to others as they make choices. So how are we to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves? Let's look at four stories that are familiar to all of us, hopefully from Scripture. If not familiar, I hope you all see that they're instructive for how we might learn to love God and love neighbor. First, let's journey to the Valley of Elah, where David, the shepherd boy, has come to the great battle against the Philistines, bringing food for his brothers. And as he crests that hill and looks down in the valley, what does he witness? But the army of Israel and Israel's king, fearful, dismayed, shaking in their boots at the sight of this giant Goliath. David looks out, sees the same exact giant, and is offended. He's not dismayed. He's empowered. Why is that? He sees the same giant as everybody else, but whereas everybody else sees the giant in relationship to themselves, he sees the giant in relationship to his God. Eugene Peterson calls this having a God-dominated perspective. That whatever trial or trouble or situation you're facing, you're looking at it in light of who God is, who he promises to always be. We'll come back to David in just a second. Another familiar story, Daniel in the lion's den. We tend to think of Daniel as a younger man in this story, but he's honestly around 80 years old at this point. He has served five different kings, risen to leadership in every administration. He is gifted and does his job well. And yet we find here um, jealous co-workers, other leaders among him that want to take him down. And they can't find any fault in him, so they have to create fault. And so they convince the king to write an ordinance that forbids anyone for 30 days from praying to anyone or anything other than the king. And listen here, just one verse, how Daniel responds when he hears about this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Note the faithfulness here. He doesn't politic. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't depend upon his own cleverness. He's not trying to talk his way out or buy his way out of this situation. He's not even trying to justify sinning to God because of how valuable he is to God's work. He simply practices faithfulness and goes and prays. He can do this because he's been doing this. He's been developing these habits, this dependence upon God. It informs all of his choices, how he lives his life. I have a quote on my whiteboard in my office. I've been up there for a few years now. It's by the British philosopher Iris Murdoch. She says, at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. David and Daniel make the choice to love the Lord 
because they've been loving him, putting him first all along. When the moment of choice comes, they've, been, they've, they've known what they will choose. David is able to hear God's voice and see God clearly in the conflict because he's been talking to God in the prairies and the pastures, in the fields with the sheep. In the quiet and the calm, he's learned to train himself to hear the Lord's voice so that when he's in the chaos, he hears it clearly. Daniel has been doing the same day after day, practicing obedience. So many of my sins have been as a result of me having a me-dominated or an other-dominated perspective rather than a God-dominated perspective. It takes daily practice to train ourselves in that perspective that we might choose obedience. And I'm I'm telling you right now, no matter how costly in the moment, you will never regret obedience. So that's loving God. Let's look at loving neighbor. We'll go to the court of a Persian king where Esther has been crowned queen with all the privileges thereunto. And yet in the midst of all that, she becomes aware via her cousin Mordecai that the king's advisor, Haman, wants to destroy all the Jewish people, one of which is Esther herself, which the king doesn't know. Mordecai says, you have to do something. You're, you're, you're there now. You can do something for us. And she doesn't want to. She's afraid of dying herself. And yet his words to her, his encouragement to her, she chooses at great risk to herself, courageously chooses to go to the king to risk her life on behalf of her people. Or let's go to the wilderness of Ziph in 1 Samuel 23. Jonathan, son of Saul, knows that his friend David is at one of his lowest points. David's on the run for his life from Saul. If anyone's going to actually benefit from the death of David, it's Jonathan. Most would think kingships roll down to the next generation, but that's not the way God has established it. And Jonathan is okay with that because Jonathan loves his Lord and he loves his brother. And so we read here that David was in the wilderness at Horesh and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. He said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Putting David's hand in God's hand is what that literally means. Strengthening his hand in God's hand by speaking the promises of God to his friend in a desperate moment. That's loving God and loving neighbor at personal risk to yourself. Now, loving God is primary. It has to come first. It's of most importance because trusting in his love, being loved by him actually fills us to love others. We recently installed a new kitchen sink and with that came a new faucet and a new faucet head. And so I've had to work on that a couple different times. It's it's interesting. It's one of those where you can click a button and what's a steady stream of water becomes more of a shower. It's, it's, It's dispersed. And I've had to work on it a few times and it's a you know, it's a really strong line of water that comes out from the water line and then a, a weaker one, but still an effective one that comes. And I thought about how we're kind of like that faucet head. If I'm not connected to the main water line, I'm dry. I've got nothing to pour out. But once I'm connected and I'm in the flow of that water line, I'm able to water. I'm able to pour out. So we put ourselves in the flow as we love God by listening to him and talking to him, listening to the word preached, reading the word, studying the word, talking to him as we pray, as we pray with one another, repenting, seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. These are all ways that we get to know the character of our God and know that we can trust him. 
It's when we forget who he is that we begin to behave differently. Once we're out of the flow, we don't have the water on, we begin to act a little bit differently. Instead of looking to him and loving him as father and trusting him as his children, we begin to offer perfunctory prayers, perfunctory behaviors, those of religious people. Religious people who live in fear with an attitude that depends on hopefully having done enough to earn God's favor. Rather than acting like the children of the king that we actually are and running to him with confidence and desperate dependence, knowing that he loves us regardless. It's in knowing God's character that we come to love him and trust him, to trust that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he's going to do, and that in turn allows us to love other people. Listen to 1 John 4.19. This is the command. We love first because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John gets it absolutely right. It's necessary for us to put ourselves in the path of God's love that we might love him. And in turn, that results in loving our neighbors as ourselves. Now, the temptation is for us to think that, how can I love other people like I love myself? I can barely do that. I don't have the means. I don't have the capacity to look to everybody else's needs. But that is thinking like humans and not thinking about the economy of God. This is the same God who created everything out of nothing with mere words. The same Jesus who divided loaves and fish for the 5,000 with buckets of leftovers at the end. It doesn't make sense. This love is multiplicative. It actually motivates us and equips us and it grows. It doesn't make sense, but it's the economy of God. So last point, what's this actually mean for you and me? I would say it means everything, not to overstate this. Again, this is the center of scripture. Everything else depends upon this is what Jesus has just said. It ought to be our guide in everything. It should guide us in how we think about the will of God. I was talking this summer with another one of my sons about the future and was reminded of something I heard my last night of seminary, the night before commencement. One of the professors gave a a talk after a dinner, and I've always thought about this. It's not that emotional, I'm not joking. (laughs) He said that we make the mistake as people of thinking of the will of God as a tightrope, something that I have to carefully maneuver so tightly prescripted that if I make one misstep, I will fall out of the will of God. He said that's wrong. The will of God isn't a tightrope, but it's a vast prairie that we can run to and fro with all kinds of choices that we can make. And I think that's absolutely true and probably a whole different chapel talk, but the reality is the Bible is not going to tell you which major to declare, which job to take, whether to get married or not, which person to marry, but it does tell you that the absolute center of your life should be loving God and loving neighbor like Jesus. All these decisions should be filtered through that grid. God's will is not a list of the decisions for your life. God's will is a way of life. You have a vast prairie of choices 
any number of jobs to take, any number of neighborhoods to move to, any number of churches to attend, any number of people to marry. But just one, please. (laughs) You're free to make any number of choices on that front, but you're not free to put anything above or before God. When you do make the choice, you have to ask, will this job allow me to love God and love neighbor? Will this church point me to love God and love neighbor? Will this potential spouse encourage me to love God and love neighbor more? It applies to everything, all our choices, all our relationships. You're either putting yourself in the path of God's love or you're not. In turn, you're you're, you're either learning to love other people or you're not. Some of you might be thinking, I've not really loved God for a long time. I've not known his love for a long time. I feel like I've walked 100 miles away from him. I've been living in this sin for so long. I've got so much work to do to get to a place where I feel like I can approach him to seek forgiveness, where he would actually want to forgive me. Here's my big takeaway. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. Don't forget the good news of why Jesus came. He did everything out of love for the Father and love for you. You don't need a new resume. You get his. You don't have to make it right. He's already done it. You don't need to backtrack 100 miles back to him. You just need to turn around. He's right there. Inviting you to know his love. Inviting you to drink deeply out of the overflow you can trust him again you might pour yourself out on others some of you might also think you know those are great stories but how can I possibly relate to slaying a giant or saving my people from death I get it I mean the reality is the epic act isn't on the line for most of us most days what we're called to is daily faithfulness I read a story a few years ago about a squadron of U.S. bombers in World War II that took heavy anti-aircraft fire on a bombing run from Nazi forces. One plane in particular took a direct hit to one of their fuel tanks, and to the surprise of the pilot and the crew, it didn't explode. They were able to land the plane, and the pilot asked his crew chief to check on that cast tank and get back to him about the damage. The crew chief came back with not just one, but 11 total projectiles that had penetrated that gas tank and had yet not exploded. Upon opening each one, they found not a single one of those projectiles had been loaded with explosive munitions. And in one of them, they found a note. A single note in an unfamiliar language. After finding someone in military intelligence that could read Czech, they were able to interpret the short note. It simply read, This is all we can do right now. The Nazis had conscripted able-bodied people from Czechoslovakia to work in the munition factory to supply the Nazi war machine. As much as they would have loved to eliminate Hitler themselves, as much as they would have loved to destroy the the ammunition factory, they did the one thing they could do to help the cause. It's a beautiful picture of practicing faithfulness in the day-to-day 
doing the thing that you can, when you can, developing habits of faithfulness. We're called by Jesus to follow his example. Love God, love neighbor. We may not be called to face a giant. We may not be called to risk our lives for others. But we all should be practicing faithfulness in the day-to-day. Listening like David in the fields. Praying like Daniel in his room. So that when the big moments come, when the moments of choice arrive, we've learned to hear his voice in the quiet so that we can trust it in that moment of decision. And in turn, we can expect to be motivated to sacrificially love our brothers and sisters like Esther, to pursue our friends at personal cost like Jonathan, and selflessly love them by putting their hands in God's hands by repeating his promises to them. Jesus has given us these commands. They are simple, yet they are so profound. A child can begin to understand it, but we can and should spend the rest of our lives plumbing the depths of these commands, the implications and the goodness, and we should do it together. So that's it. I hope you want more. I hope you want to participate in what can be a glorious project of formation that we are called together to in this community, to live in love like Jesus. I hope you take advantage of the people that are all around you here, myself included, all my colleagues I work with, your brothers and sisters in your, on your halls, on your teams, the churches that are nearby. I'm just asking you to be courageous, to reach out, and to want more. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are to you for Jesus, that he loved you and he loved us all the way to the cross. Father, may we know the certainty of your love, the unshakable nature of your character more and more each day, that we might know your voice and trust it in the quiet and in the chaos. May we never forget our status as your children. Help us to be a community that puts one another's hands in God's hands as together we love you and love one another. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.